Lord God, thank you for the music this morning, for our for your gift to us of, of worship, that we could have a means of acknowledging your goodness and your love and your graciousness towards us, and of our of the of the gift of music and its ability to to take us away from our present struggles and loneliness and, and to see a, a more beautiful and more grand and more eternal picture in the gospel and in your love that come through the songs. Lord, as we conclude the gospel of Mark here today, as we look um, into the passages around Jesus' suffering, his prayer at Gethsemane, the trial before the Jews, the trial before the Romans, finally his death, his burial, and then his resurrection. God, we, we pray that you would help us to see um, a familiar story in a new light, that we could see some of Jesus as a person, and that we could see our own lives as connected to his. And God, that we could see his resurrection and his death as, as also connected and vitally a part of our own lives. And our own existence, and not only that, but God, the, 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 the very existence of the entire world wrapped up into the person and work of Jesus. So, Lord God, I pray that you would indeed bless my words, that they would uh, reflect your text truthfully and accurately, that they would edify us and build us up towards unity as a church, and God, that they would ultimately uh, give glory and praise to your name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, I hope you all had a good Thanksgiving, probably around a lot of family and friends. Um, if not, um, I hope you had a good Thanksgiving. Sometimes being around family and friends doesn't make out to be for a good Thanksgiving. But uh, I want to talk a little bit today as we, as we go through the, the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus, the things that led up to it. I want to look at the theme of loneliness and abandonment in this story. I think at varying frequencies and durations, all of us experience seasons of great loneliness. And I want you to take just a little bit of time to maybe recall or remember a, a time where you felt just extremely alone, maybe extremely abandoned. Um, and, and kind of get that in your mind. Ask yourself, or you know, who was around? You had people around you, probably. Okay, so even in the midst of having people around you, close friends, family members, um, you still felt alone. Think about who was around you. Think about the circumstances. Um, and, I, and I just want you to kind of dwell on that or have that in your mind as we go through this narrative. We're going to do just kind of a a broad sweep. I'm going to talk through the story. We're going to read a few of the passages. And I think that all of us would acknowledge that even in times where we have the fortune to have an abundance of family and friends, we experience seasons of great loneliness or feelings of abandonment. Um, they don't provide they don't provide for our comfort. They're just unable to provide what is needed for us to overcome those feelings. 
Sometimes our family and, and our close friends make those seasons and those feelings of loneliness and abandonment worse. They don't know how to provide the comfort. They don't seem to understand. They're not able to empathize. Um, I'm still trucking through my reading the Bible in a year, and, and I'm in the book of Job right now, and just read it, a, read the beginning chapters a few days ago. And, uh, you know, for those of you that know the story, it's, it's perhaps the oldest book uh, in the Bible from, a, from a, the time of writing. And it's about, a, um, it's about a man who was a righteous man that feared God and had uh, many blessings in terms of a, a large family, large land holdings, was a wealthy and prop, prosperous individual, and uh, feared God and worshiped God and regularly prayed and sought God in his face and acknowledged the, the goodness that, that God had shown him. Well, Satan, who is called the adversary, um, made a request to God to inflict Job with suffering. Um, and Satan was convinced that if Job did not have all of these great possessions, if he didn't have his family, then, um, then he would no longer fear and worship and serve the Lord. And so Satan inflicts all of these things on him. And he, uh, I mean, in one day, within like, 10 minutes, he gets four different announcements. Your land has been taken, your flocks have been stolen, um, your, your, um, your children have all been killed. And so he's just immediately thrust into this place of great suffering. And his best friends come, and they they sound very religious and righteous, and they essentially end up telling him um, that it's his fault that he's suffering. Job, everybody knows that if you do good, God is good to you, and that if you do bad, God is bad to you. I mean, they were basically preaching a, a works-based understanding of God's blessing in our lives. And Job would contradict them, and he would say, listen, that, that is not the case. That is not the case. And then his wife came, because Job would just persevere in his faithfulness towards God. His wife comes and tells him, Job, why don't you just curse God and die? That's his wife telling him, go die somewhere, Job. And so Job was in this place of great loneliness, literally sitting in a pile of, of ashes, weeping and scraping the sores on his body that Satan had inflicted upon him. But imagine that Job, even with his best friends and even with his wife, felt extremely lonely. And we see in Job suffering and loneliness and abandonment while holding on to the promises of God and what Job knew of God. And, and we see some similarities here in the life of Jesus in his final days, what is commonly referred to as, as the passion. And again, I, we have these seasons. We're not unlike Job, where our friends and our family just can't seem to come up with the right words or they come at us with the exact wrong words. And so Jesus is going to demonstrate this uh, in, in an even more 
um, full and complete way. And so I just want to look at his few last days, his few last days. And so just before Jesus and his disciples celebrate the Passover, they're in this little town called Bethany. And Jesus is with his close friends. He's with his close friends, the beginning of his last few days. And they're all around him. And a woman comes in with a jar of perfume. And the jar of perfume was worth almost an entire year's income, 300 denarii, which is 300 days wages. And so, you know, the median income in the Twin Cities is around $60,000. So think of, a, think of a, a woman coming in with you know, 50, $55,000 worth of, I don't even know if you can, I'm sure you can. I'm sure you can buy somewhere a jar of perfume worth $55,000. But imagine that, Jesus is there, and, and she anoints him in that perfume. So he is being honored. All of his friends are around, he's being honored. One of his disciples, who turns out to be Judas, complains about the woman's extravagant use of this perfume. And he's, he, Judas is alarmed that Jesus hasn't made a bigger deal of this. Jude, and, and the disciple, you don't know explicitly from Mark that it was Judas. Uh, you get it, um, it's inferred. Another gospel tells us that it was Judas. And he, and he rebukes Jesus. That should have been sold and given to the poor. Well, Judas was the money bag holder and would have pilfered some of that 300 denarii if it indeed had been sold and given to the poor. He would have profited it from it. And this gets him mad enough, gets him mad enough to where after that event, he goes to the chief priests and says, hey, I'm, I'll betray Christ. This event around the money was the impetus that got Judas to betray Jesus. And they gave him money. And they gave, his, gave him money. Jesus is at Passover with his friends and he says, one of you is going to betray me. This is after, after we read that uh, Judas had gone to the chief priest and made an arrangement. And then also at this Passover, because it's at the Passover feast that um, Jesus would be offered up as the final, final Passover lamb in remembrance of God's deliverance of Israel from the slavery in Egypt. And so Jesus is at this last Passover and he says, you know, one of you is going to betray me and all of you are going to fall away from me. So there's a hint of betrayal and there's the prediction of all of his friends leaving him at his most significant hour of need. And all of his friends, this is, these are Jesus' best friends. All of them say, Jesus, we will stick with it. We will stick with you until you die. If it even causes us our death, we will stick with you. And Jesus says, it, it is written it is written, the friends would all scatter. And so Jesus then goes, they, they break up their dinner at Passover, and they go to the Garden of Gethsemane. 
And Jesus goes to pray. Jesus goes to pray. And his friends are falling asleep. He asks them to stand guard. He knows that Judas has gone to betray him. He knows that Judas is going to return with uh, an arresting force to take him captive. And so he tells his disciples, hey, you guys stand guard. I'm going to go pray. And Jesus is alone. His friends aren't standing guard. It's a hint at their later fleeing. They're not prepared for what Jesus needs. He says, pray that you may not be tempted. And they fall into the temptation and they sleep. And so finally, after three times when Jesus comes back from praying, he, he sees his disciples sleeping. They're not standing guard. They're not alert. And then he sees the arresting force. So the first passage we're going to read is chapter 14, verses 44 through 50 of Mark. 14, 44. Fourteen forty-four. Excuse me, forty-three. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, one of his friends, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. So, Mark is bringing up these specific things. They've got swords. They've got clubs. And so just imagine you yourselves there. You have a small group of 12-ish people. And here's a large force of people with weapons that are coming. And so you start feeling afraid, your little group. And it's dark. And there's no electric lights. And there's torches. And they've got, they've got things like this. And it's, but it's dark enough where Judas has to identify Jesus. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, this one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, have you come out as against a robber? with swords and clubs to capture me. Day after day, I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. So it's dark, and all of your friends, the ones that said, no, we will stick with it till the end, even if it means our own death, Jesus, we'll stick with you. He's alone. He's alone. And he's in hostile hands. You know, the only, the, in terms of imagery, I've never experienced this where I had like a gang of hostile people with weapons coming around me. I don't, probably very few of us have. Have, have any of you better, ever been in that type of experience where you have a group of hostile people, many of them, coming at you and you're one person and you're defenseless. Have any of you ever had that experience? You? Yeah, in your, in your trip this, this past. But you were with a group of people still. Yeah. You know, when I watch movies, uh, I just, again, I, I watched, um, I watched uh, The Free State of Jones. I've mentioned it a few times in a couple sermons recently. And there's a scene in there where 
it's, it's, it's after the Civil War, so the slaves are freed, and there's an individual's name is Moses, and he is, he's registering um, freedmen to vote. And a, uh, a lynching crowd of Klan members comes after him. He's alone, they're hostile, they're violent, they've got weapons, and they kill him. You know, it's those types of scenes that give me imagery to this um, because I've never experienced anything like this before. But Jesus knew that it would happen. Jesus knew that he would have a hostile group of people. He knew that his friends would all leave him because the scriptures said so. The scriptures said so. And he still pressed on. Now, he was, he was weeping blood in the, or he was, he was sweating blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. The stress and the anxiety around what Jesus knew was coming was very great. But he said, God, if this is your will for me, then I will fulfill it. So here Jesus is with this hostile group. They've taken him captive, and he goes to trial. So he has two trials. He has the trial before the Jewish leaders. Now, I know some of you have been on trial before, and the, the somewhat frightening experience that can be. Um, but most of us, when we go into trial, and I, I, was, I, I was in a trial one time, as some of you have heard this story, uh, I was arrested for serving alcohol to a minor at a volunteer event here in Uptown in 2008. And so uh, they arrested me, the police officers did. Uh, I didn't do it on purpose. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I did it on purpose, but I didn't like knowingly sell alcohol to a minor. Long story, I won't get into the details of it. But it wasn't just something I could like write a ticket for or write a check for and you know, put in the mail like a driving infraction. I, I had to get booked, I had to get fingerprinted, I, I, I got mug shots, I had to go to court, I had to meet with the prosecuting attorney for the city of Minneapolis or for the Hennepin County, I don't, I don't know which one, I can't remember. Um, and when I went, finally, I, I had two dates, and the first, they didn't have all of my, I, I hadn't been booked for the first date, so they said, go get booked, come back at a later date. Um, so I running around, um, and, it's, and it's not like I was going to plead innocent. <laughs> I sold alcohol to a minor. The facts were there. Uh, you know, could I have maybe taken it to trial and wiggled around and said, listen, this guy's a pastor, he's volunteering, they didn't, he didn't, they didn't get trained, it's not even the position he volunteered for, you know, but I, I knew it would just be a small fine. It was a hundred bucks. So I didn't need to get a lawyer. And the person on my side that I went before the judge with was the prosecutor. <laughs> this was the guy with me. Anna, I didn't need Anna to go down, but I tell you what, I walked into that courtroom and the weight of the law and the significance of how lonely the people were there without someone with them. Now again, most of them probably had an attorney, but the feeling of being confronted in a trial with, with the force of the government against you is where Jesus was at. He had no lawyer. He had no defense against the, the false witnesses and the false testimonies that were levied against him. 
Now think about when you're in a setting and somebody's telling lies about you, what your tendency is. You start violently arguing against those lies, right? And then you start violently arguing against the liars. And it gets you quite animated. I mean, I know it does me. If I'm being attacked, if I'm being accused, and I know the things are not true, and I I know the people are not telling the truth, either because they're intentionally trying to not tell the truth, or they don't know the whole story either. So here's Jesus. Here's Jesus alone. All of his friends have left, except Peter, who's kind of on the sidelines watching what is happening, and Jesus knows he's there. One of the other Gospels reports that Jesus was aware of Peter's presence. So you know all of your friends are gone, you're alone, the force of the law is against you, the number of people speaking lies, and the only one that you know that is there is about to deny you and say that he doesn't know you and will swear an oath against that fact. The only thing Jesus responds to in this trial, and he will repeat it in the trial before the Romans, is he is indeed the Son of God, he is indeed the King of the Jews. The, the, the prediction or, or the, 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 the proclamation that Mark has been very carefully unfolding throughout his gospel that, that this is the Messiah, that Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ, is the Messiah, the promised King of the Jews. That is the unfolding thread of Mark's gospel. That Jesus admits to and doesn't respond to anything else. He's not waffling in fear. He is not saying anything that he can to get out of the circumstances. He is utterly alone. He's been abandoned by everybody. But he still has God. He still has God. He was still reaching out to God in prayer. I want to take you to 14, chapter 14, verses 66 through 72. This is the story of Peter's denial. And as Peter was below in the courtyard watching this trial, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither knew, excuse me, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began to say to the bystanders, this man is one of them. But again he denied it, and after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. And he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. So here's Jesus all by himself being accused of all of these things. And a young girl comes up and says, hey, I think, I think you were with Jesus. And then she goes and tells a crowd. And the crowd says, hey, we, we think you were with Jesus. And then the whole crowd is like, yeah, you were with Jesus. And he denies 
all three times and Jesus is there and he sees it and observes it and Peter remembered and Peter was crushed. He was crushed. So think about Jesus. Now, I mean, we can, th- I think we have a tendency to not consider the humanity of Jesus as much as we need to. He was a man. He was a man, just like us. His experience and what he would be feeling was just like we would be experiencing and feeling, but I am certain that none of us would handle it the same way that Jesus is handling it. So then he goes to trial against the Roman. He's, he, Pilate questions him. And he admits to Pilate to being king of the Jews. And every year at Passover, the Romans had a tradition of releasing one of the prisoners to the Jews as a sign of, of their graciousness. And the crowd, the crowd that, that Jesus had healed, the crowd that Jesus had fed, had received money from the Jewish leaders to ask for Barabbas, and not Jesus, a murderer, a murderer. They would rather have a convicted murderer released than Jesus, the Son of God. So he is sentenced to scourging. Scourging was a a practice of whipping a, a person uh, 39 times with a whip that had multiple strands, and in those strands of leather were tied pieces of metal and glass. And so they whipped Jesus 39 times with a whip of metal and glass, ripping parts of his body off with each, with each lash. And then they crucified him. Crucifixion at that time was the means of of extreme torture and punishment by the Romans. And so they nailed him to the cross, a a picture that we're familiar with, except rarely do the pictures ever show the bloody Jesus in the way he would have been. So they nail him with his hands and his feet to the cross, and they stand him up publicly with two thieves. With two thieves. So here he is, completely naked, alone, abandoned by his friends, and hung up to dry, literally. But he's still with God. He still has a sense of God being with him. He still has a sense of God being with him. But then we come to the, to the end. We come to his death. Chapter 15, verses 33 through 39. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. So the sixth hour is around noon. It's noon in the day. Until three o'clock in the afternoon, there was a complete eclipse of the sun, and it was utterly dark, completely uncharacteristic. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who had stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. The last declaration by a Roman pagan said with full confidence and conviction for just seeing what he saw. Just seeing what he saw in the way Jesus died in the darkness that covered the land. Here we have a Roman pagan who had not seen his miracles, who had not heard his teaching, declare that this man was indeed the Son of God. And then he is buried. He is buried, he is taken down by Joseph of Arimathea, and he is put in a tomb, and the tomb is sealed with a large stone, and it's put under guard, it's put under guard. And then Jesus is, Jesus is resurrected. So I want to f- finally read chapter 16, the final eight verses of the Gospel of Mark. Chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. Now when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. And there you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. So we've seen, we've seen the death of Jesus. We have now the resurrection. And I want to point out that up until Jesus' death, he had been in communion with God God had been strengthening him. He was praying. His disciples were leaving. His friends were leaving. Peter denied him. But, but he had experienced a strengthening from God. But at that point on the cross where he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus did not sense the presence of God. For the first time in his life, And so he was completely alone and completely abandoned. And this idea of being forsaken, it's it's, you have left me, God. And the reason why I wanted to look at this from the perspective of Jesus' loneliness and Jesus' sense of abandonment is because that's the only phrase that Mark records Jesus saying at the moment of his death in those final hours. The other gospels have other parts other things that Jesus said. Like he says, 
it is finished, and then gives up his spirit. And then the other gospels record that. But that's not what Mark is wanting us to see. What Mark is wanting us to see is Jesus' sense of being completely alone and completely abandoned. Even, Even God was not there for him at the time. Now, scholars for centuries have, you know, have, have figured this out and tried to explain it from the perspective of, well, for, for, for Christ to, to provide the perfect atoning sacrifice, he had to experience a time where he was completely separated from God. And thus, because of that, uh, it, 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 um, he was able to provide a substitute, our substitute, because we are at a place where, where we are completely separated from God, and Christ had to experience that in order to provide that perfect substitute. Mark doesn't argue that, okay? And we see in other passages that, this, that Jesus is indeed the, the substitute for us. He took the weight and the penalty of our sin um, so that we would not have to, okay? That's not what Mark's concern is. What Mark wants us to understand is what Jesus felt, what Jesus felt. Forget how it figures into all of the theology around the atonement and the epistles and their teaching on that, not that it's not important, but what Mark wants us to know is that Jesus came in to this point having a deep sense of God's connection to him, but being completely abandoned by all of his friends so that he was utterly alone from a personal standpoint, but that he still had God. But at this point, even God, at least from Jesus' experience, God left him, and he had nothing. He had no one, and he said, My God, why have you left me? Why have you abandoned me? And so the resurrection comes in, and we see that Jesus wasn't abandoned. The Holy Spirit resurrected Jesus Christ. Now, Mark is... um, You notice that I stopped at verse 8, and most of your translations will go... Um, from verses 9 through 20. And there are, it's, it's really 9 through 20 is considered two different endings that have been connected. But uh, at this point, so let me just kind of explain a little bit of that to you as a side note. Um, nobody has ever been satisfied with the ending of Mark's gospel, which most scholars and the earliest manuscripts affirm ends at verse 8. If you read on through verse 20, the language is different, the ideas are different, and they reflect some smattering from the other Gospels. It's really inconsistent with the language and concerns of Mark. All right? It seems like from what we have up through verse 8 that Jesus is going to have some connection with the the apostles, the disciples in, in Galilee, okay, we, we, it seems to be the case, and that there's going to be some communication with the women who were the first to see Jesus after he had resurrected. Uh, but then verse 8, just, it just ends. And so the, the, kind of the, the leading scholarship right now at this point says, 
it seems like Mark didn't finish the gospel like he wanted to. Others came later and added some things on, but they didn't really finish it either. Um, So we're left with this non-ending ending. But we have enough in it. We have enough in it. And I know that probably throws a lot of questions. Well, isn't this the word of God without error? It's a whole different set of questions and a whole maybe serpent series uh, that we don't need to get into right now. We have the scriptures and the message of the scriptures is the person and work of Jesus and Mark's testimony along with the other gospels provide a very full picture. And we can easily see that what, where Luke was headed, if, if indeed he had it in, in mind to complete it, but didn't for some reason, um, we do know that Jesus would go back and talk to Peter with his disciples. We do know that Jesus was observed by the women. And Jesus' resurrection uh, is the, is the, it, it is the crux of the validity of the entire scripture. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, that the promised descendant of David would not undergo decay, as, G, as David said in the Psalms, in one of the clearest um, images of the future Messiah's resurrection from the dead that the Old Testament has. The resurrection of Jesus is the crux of the entire biblical message. Paul says if, if Jesus did not resurrect, we are, of almost, we are of all people the most to be pitied, and our faith is useless because it wouldn't be true. There would be no forgiveness of sin. There'd be no, there'd be no validity to the Old Testament scriptures. It would simply be a, a history of the nation of Israel to that point. Th- hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of people believing in a false Messiah, hoping and waiting for a false Messiah, believing in a false God. But Jesus' resurrection from the dead, which Mark affirms and teaches clearly, is the crux of our faith. And it is the resurrection from the dead that is God's final message to Jesus as a man. I didn't abandon you. I fulfilled my promises to you. And you are not alone, Jesus. You are not alone. And not only are you not alone sitting at my right hand, I am giving you, Jesus, a family. Ephesians has two different teachings on this idea of an inheritance. It says that we as the saints of God will receive an inheritance in the eternal kingdom when when Jesus returns and establishes a a new heaven and a new earth and we we look forward to our future inheritance, what we will receive when we see Jesus. But it also speaks of another inheritance. In the prayer, in the end of chapter one, Paul says that he would like us to deepen. He prays that the Holy Spirit would deepen the eyes of our hearts, and he asks for three ways that our hearts are to be enlightened. One, that we would know the hope of our calling. What does it mean to be children of God called into his family? And the hope that that creates. He wants us to deepen in that hope. But the second thing he prays for is that we would understand the riches of the glory of Christ's inheritance of us. 
We are a treasured inheritance to Jesus. We are Jesus' inheritance. It is something that he is longing for and awaiting, just like we wait for our inheritances from our parents or from our grandparents. I was talking to my brother today, and, and he, he's recently learned that he's going to eventually inherit 80 acres of wood and pasture uh, around where he lives from his family on his wife's side. Great, cool, 80 acres of great land for hunting and all these kinds of things. Right, we look forward to those kind of inheritances. Let me tell you, that, that is a drop in the, that, that doesn't even register to what we mean to Christ, what we mean to Christ. He's not alone. He's not alone. God has prepared a family for him, and that family is us. That family is us. And I want to look at a few things here. How did Jesus endure the loneliness? Because I think Jesus' endurance of loneliness is a, is, is a model. First of all, a model. It's not just a model, but it's a model for us to in, endure loneliness and abandonment. The first one is that Jesus, Jesus knew God. He loved God and he sought after God for strength. He knew God, he loved God, and he sought after God for strength. There's a great passage in the Gospel of John that says that Jesus did not entrust himself to any man, for he knew what was in a man. And, and the idea there is, is not that he didn't develop close relationships with people. He did. One of the disciples was called the disciple whom Jesus loved, the beloved disciple, which was, the, which was John. Jesus developed very loving, intimate relationships with people, but he did, he did not entrust the well-being of his soul and mind and spirit to people. He loved them, and he received their love but he was not dependent upon them for his determination and strength and steadfastness. I think that that is impossible for us to do. <laughs> I'll be just quite honest with you. I think that is impossible for us to do. But I think that Christ calls us to it. I think that Christ calls us first and foremost to know him, to love him, to pursue him. It is the greatest command. And only when that greatest command is covered, which we talked about a couple of weeks ago, only when that greatest command is covered, to love your, the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength, are you able then to fulfill the second command, to love your neighbor as yourself. If you've mixed those two up to where your ability to love God and to pursue faithfulness to him is dependent upon how others treat you or, how on you or how you treat others, you're never gonna be able to fulfill that first command, which is therefore gonna, you're never gonna be able to really fulfill the second one. You see that? First and foremost, Jesus pursued God and his kingdom. And that doesn't mean that we live out an individualistic faith. It means that our faith concerns us as individuals. And then us as individuals, we are called to a corporate faith. We are called to the family of God. We are called to give our lives in service of other people. 
And that is a reflection of the individual faith that we have with God and the strength that we draw from him, just as Jesus did. Just as Jesus did. The second is that he knew and believed the scriptures, and this is kind of tied to the first one. He knew and believed the scriptures about himself and his purpose. All throughout this, you see repeatedly Mark increasingly becoming more frequent in his comment upon how the scriptures had told about this, or that the scriptures would need to be fulfilled. In fact, at the beginning of the whole narrative, the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees did not want Jesus to die during the Passover, because they didn't want a a huge commotion and a riot with all of the hundreds of thousands of people that descended upon Jerusalem from all over the world during Passover. And so they were doing everything to avoid it. They were doing everything to avoid it. Jesus knew that he was the final Passover lamb. And he told Judas at the feast, go, when Jesus was having Passover with his disciples, go, Judas, do what you must do. Jesus was in charge of the timing of his death. Not humanity. Jesus knew that he was the final Passover lamb. He knew that he was the promised Messiah. He knew that this was God's will. And he knew that this was his calling. And so he knew God and he knew what God had called him to. And that enabled him to progress through the loneliness and abandonment. But there was one more thing. He really loved people. He was not entrusted to them. He was not dependent upon them. He drew his strength from God, and he drew his strength from the Spirit of God dwelling in him. He drew his strength from what he knew God had called him to, and he was resolute on accomplishing that purpose. And in so doing, he was able to love people. And his love for people was also an additional source of strength because ultimately he knew what he was doing was indeed the will of the Father, but he knew the will of the Father was wrapped up in the great promise and truth of John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his son. Jesus knew that he was God's expression of love. And Jesus knew that this was the only way, the only way that they could save humanity from itself was to die for it. And so it was, he knew God, he loved God, he understood the scriptures and scriptures calling upon his life and his commitment to others and not himself. His commitment to others and not himself. And that pushed him through the loneliness, it pushed him through the abandonment to fulfill what he needed to fulfill. So what do we do with our aloneness? I think the first thing, recognize that you will never be as alone as Jesus was. Now, that said, I know and I experience these where it seems like God is, <laughs> has completely abandoned you. You don't feel God, you don't sense his presence, but it's a feeling. It's a feeling. Jesus felt that because God did abandon him. God did abandon him. 
But the promise to you, as long as you're still alive, if you are alive, you are not alone. You are not alone. God will not and has not abandoned you. Now you can read Psalm 88, the black psalm, and some other psalms, and it feels like God has abandoned you. And that is where you need to draw upon what the word says, like Jesus did. Know God. Don't take your feelings as truth. Don't take your feelings as truth. Your feelings are a jumbled morass of lack of sleep, stuff you eat, the flesh, the pressures of the world around you, demonic forces that are attacking you, the mood that you're in, how you slept. I mean, it, it is a whole morass. All your feelings are just a morass of stuff that is very weak in terms of determining what truth is. So when you're feeling alone and abandoned, it's not that, it's not that those feelings aren't important. It's not that those feelings aren't, aren't saying something that you need to be thinking about or at least trying to discover why you're feeling those things. They're important. Don't disregard them. But do not let them serve as what you believe to be true. Do not let them serve to be the foundation of what you believe to be true. Because the Word says that God is near you, that His Spirit is near you, and that if you seek after Him, you will find him. And he will meet you where you're at. And he will give you a sense of his filling. And will give you a sense of his presence. But it's going to be on his terms and not on yours. If you come to God with a bunch of demands that he's got to immediately fulfill, that's, that's not who God is. You've got to come to God on his terms. And that your aloneness, I think we have to realize that our aloneness does not have to be our final or permanent state. It wasn't Jesus' final state. You're not going to be alone forever. You're going to feel alone forever. Unless you die without God. Unless you die without God. And we'll get into in the book of Revelation that we're going to hit in the spring on what it means to die without God. And all the different realities and that go into that and, and the different interpretations that there are in Scripture about what it means to die without God. You're not going to stay there. And in the midst of feeling forsaken and in the midst of feeling alone, believe in the truth that God is with you and that He will strengthen you and move you to a place of fruit, of happiness, of joy. We have seasons of pruning, and one of those seasons is called isolation, where you feel alone. It's not the permanent state. And I think finally we have to, we have to, to go to the fact that not only will we never be as alone as Jesus was, I think we have to realize and believe the gospel, and that Jesus became alone so that we wouldn't have to be. We wouldn't have to, we, we're not going to have to, have to, to, to be taken by a, an angry mob 
a weaponized mob that comes to us in the dark and kidnaps us and puts us on trial and accuses us of false things and, and condemns us to death for eternity. We don't have to do that because Jesus has entered into that state for us. And so that when we're alone, we can, we can go to Jesus and say, Jesus, I know you have, I know you've experienced this far worse than me. I know you've experienced it so that, so that I could know God the way you know God. I know so that you could have fellowship and communion with God the way you know and have fellowship and communion with God. So that you, so that you can be a part of his family as Christ is the head of the church and the head of the family and who has taken the whole family in as, a, as an inheritance. He became alone so that we wouldn't have to. Let me pray. Lord, uh, thank you for giving us insight into Jesus' feelings and his experiences and into the abandonment that he had. And uh, We pray, God, that you would help us in the times where we are alone, where we feel abandoned, where we feel like even the closest people to us just can't help to provide some relief from the suffering. God, we are so thankful that we have you too. And that by renewing our minds on the word and by being filled with the spirit as, as we pursue you, we can overcome the inevitable feelings of loneliness and abandonment that this world has for us at times. But help us, God, to, to love you and to put our trust in you and not in other people. Help us, Lord God, to believe in your word and help us to know your word so that we're clear on the callings that you have for us so that we may persevere to love others as you have loved us as we find our strength in the truth of, of the gospel, that Christ has died and risen that we may have life. In Christ's name, amen.